Well, if you're a guest, uh, let me say hi also. My name's John. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's good to be worshiping with you uh, today. You're, you're catching us in the second week of a sermon series that's taking us through Advent. And if you're uh, kind of new to the church and new to the church calendar, Advent is the season of four weeks. It starts four Sundays before Christmas and uh, ends on, on uh, Christmas Eve. And it's this, uh, re- really, it's the first season in the church year, the church calendar. And that's all by intent. It's, it's kind of the kickoff to the year. And it's the season when we as followers of Jesus remember how long uh, uh, the Jews of old waited for the Messiah to come. There was a, a promise long, long ago that was finally fulfilled when Jesus came the first time at that, at that first Christmas. So Advent is about remembering. But it's not only about remembering. It's not just about looking backward in time. It is equally as much, if not more, about looking forward in time and anticipating that Jesus, just like he came after being long awaited before, will return again as he promised to. He will come again to this world. And that's the, that's the anticipate part. So thus the title of the sermon series, Anticipating. And that's, that's really the the spiritual intent of the season, to refocus us on the fact that Jesus really will come again. This isn't just a religious idea that kind of got planted in us through a Sunday school experience or some church experience. This, this is the real world. He will return. And so, trusting that Jesus will come again, uh, we think about what we actually anticipate. And today we focus on the invitation that God extends to us, not only in this season, but really uh, every day of life. It's the invitation that God extends to everyone everywhere in Jesus. And, and it really is the invitation, uh, the, the big ticket item. You know, that which uh, points toward the, the message of the gospel for everyone everywhere. And it's really important that we get this, understand this correctly, because there's a lot of misunderstanding around the invitation. So the passage we're looking at today comes from Luke chapter 3, uh, just the first six verses of that chapter. So let's listen to that scripture now. In the 15th year, the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria, and Traconitus, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the books of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, and every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight. The rough ways become smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. 
This is the reading of God's word. So let's think a little bit about what's, what's kind of going on here in uh, the life of Jesus, in the Gospels that we have in the, in the Scripture. The authors take a, a, a lot of pain to anchor the whole message in history, and, and Luke, Dr. Luke, is doing the same here. Uh, it was a few weeks ago, I think, that I, at the beginning of a message, kind of rehearsed some of the stuff we know about Jesus from sources outside the Bible. And if, if you're kind of new to that content, it can be surprising uh, because some of us just don't know this, this history. From sources outside of the Bible, we know that Jesus was a real person who really lived, uh, not just a fictional person made up for a religion. We know that Jesus was uh, an itinerant Jewish rabbi who seriously annoyed the power structures of the Jewish system of his day, the, the, temp- the temple power structure, really. Um, and, and that led to such a confrontation that those powers turned against him and uh, presented him to the Roman authorities to be executed. That was their desire. And we know from sources outside the Bible that Jesus was executed on order of Pontius Pilate, uh, then governor of Judea at the time. And we also know from sources outside the Bible that Jesus was buried, placed in a tomb on a Friday before that Sabbath began, and that on that Sunday, uh, two days following, three days by Jewish calculation of days, uh, the tomb was found empty and that the the tomb of Jesus was empty, and nobody could find his body. We know all of that from sources outside the Bible. Anchored in history, this story is. And and Luke continues that in this uh, this, uh, text we just read. He, He mentions no less than seven different leaders, five leaders in the Roman Palestinian government. Tiberius was the Roman emperor, the Caesar, We know that he reigned from 14 AD to 37 AD. Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea, he was in that role from 26 AD to 36 AD. Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, not to be confused with Herod the Great, this was his son, Herod Antipater, or Antipas for short. Uh, He was the king of Galilee. Philip, tetrarch of Iteria and Trachonitis. Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene. Now, All of this anchored in history. We know when John the Baptist began his ministry, 29 AD, the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius. It's right there. We know it historically. That's half the point of this. The other half is to get a feel of the political climate of the day because none of these guys were good guys. This is a a, a veritable who's who's list of degenerate leaders of the ancient world. Uh, these folks were in power and they were concerned about one thing themselves. It was really, really dark politically. It was difficult to live in this world. Uh, Just very, very hard. And then Luke goes on to name the two high priests, Annas and and Caiaphas. Now, Annas had been the high priest way before John the Baptist, so it's kind of interesting because it would seem that the dates are off. But in making this reference... Uh, Luke is referring to the, the whole stream of, of high priests that came because after Annas, uh, he was succeeded by his four sons in a row. And when all of them has, had served Caiaphas, his son-in-law came and took office. So by making this reference, it's a clear reference to the, the concentration of evil power and the nepotism of the high priesthood who was in the back pocket of the Roman and Palestinian leaders. Everything was off the rails. If we were hoping to look to the temple for something different than the world, we were sorely disappointed. 
And it was against that backdrop that, to quote the scripture, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. The word came to John. I mean, we, we know him as John the Baptist, not, not because he was a Baptist, because he was a baptizer. That's really what the word means. Interesting guy, right? His ministry of, of uh, kind of recognizing the things of God and pointing toward Jesus began while he was still in the womb. Mary, mother of Jesus, with Jesus in her womb, showed up at John's mother's place, Elizabeth, while he was in the womb. And when the two met, John jumped. There's Jesus. And he would go on to an entire lifetime career of that. There's Jesus. The scripture says he was full of the Holy Spirit from the time of his mother's womb. He grew up in the wilderness, meaning the place of spiritual formation. He sought hard after God, and he pointed to Jesus. When he spoke, very interesting, the message he spoke would become the exact same message Jesus would speak. Look at what John the Baptist said. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And Jesus picked up the baton after John was placed in prison. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come. He said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. It's, it's the message, right? The good news, a message of repentance for, for the forgiveness of sins. And that's the invitation, the main thing. The reason men, women, boys, and girls have gathered around this message of Jesus since Jesus was here in person. There's one thing, God inviting us back. And this is how he does it. And, and even John's outfit kind of played to this, right? The, the camel hair, not a camel hair sport coat, just camel hair woven weird thing with a belt. And we read this and think, when was this guy wacko? What's the point here? And if you do your homework, you realize, oh, that's what the prophet Elijah wore. This is very clearly intentional, I believe. Mimicking the garb of the prophet, saying this is a word of the Lord for the people of God. Come home. Right, so it's a prophetic call to repentance. His appearance announced the call. The message was clear. Here's the message again. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Let's not assume anything here. Uh, there's, there's an imperative in this command, repent. And there's the rationale for the imperative. For or because the kingdom of God has come near. Repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. Now, if you get anything from this message, get this. If this was the message of John the Baptist, it's the message that God gave him back then, and if it's the message that Jesus picked up and became the central theme of the preaching of Jesus, it would seem rather obvious that we need to get this message right. What does this actually mean? mean. No assumptions, no glossing over anything. What does this message mean? So let's thin slice this thing, taking it in three parts, working backwards. The kingdom of God, 
has come near, repent. So the, the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God, biblically? What, what do you think of? And, and really bring something to mind, please. I, I know if you're a fifth regular, we've talked about this before, so maybe you're remembering, maybe you're not. What comes into your mind when I ask, what is the kingdom of God? See, I'm, I'm concerned that most of us might think that the kingdom of God is heaven when we die. Biblically, that is not the kingdom of God. That's only a little piece of it. In, in the Bible, the phrase kingdom of God is about God's reign, R-E-I-G-N, not a place or people. So if, if the kingdom of God is about God's reign, it means it's about God functioning as God, really. God functioning as the Lord of the world, the Lord of our lives. Uh, uh, God being the king that he is and ruling actively over his kingdom. Dallas Willard, an author I, I very much enjoy, explains the kingdom of God in this way. The kingdom is God reigning. It's present wherever what God wants done is done. Uh, or in another place, the kingdom of God is described this way. The kingdom of God is any realm where what God prefers is what actually happens. So you can see that the kingdom of God doesn't refer to a place like Minneapolis. It's not over there somewhere. It refers to a reality where what God wants to happen is what is actually happening. Where God is reigning, being the king that he is. And according to John the Baptist... Uh, this, this kingdom of God, that reality where what God prefers is what actually is happening, has come near to us. So this is the second part, has, has come near. Uh, in, in the original language, in, in the Greek, that language in some ways is more complex than English. And uh, in, in the original language, sometimes it's, it's difficult to translate the fullness of that accurately into another language. It's the, it's the classic problem of translation, of which in this congregation we have some real experts in the Higbees. They do that for Wycliffe, right? But it's this challenge of how do you, how do you convey the fullness of what's being said? And uh, uh, there, there's great faithfulness exerted there, and there are always good conversations around choices that, that translators make. So thinking about this this. Uh, this verb that's translated has come near. In, in Greek, it's in the, the perfect tense, which means in English, the fullness of it is this. Has come near means extreme closeness, immediate imminence, even a presence. It's here because the moment of this coming has happened. So it's, it's not like it's not near like Caledonia is near to Grand Rapids. It's not near like, uh, you know, ideas about God and the gospel and grace have come near to us in general because Jesus has come. That's not the kind of near we're talking about. We're talking come near like right here. The, the reality of, you know, what God prefers to happen is actually happening has come right here. Not over there. Right here. Right next to you. Right in this room. Right now. Right next to us. The kingdom of God has come near. 
So the primary message of, of John the Baptist, and more importantly of Jesus, was that the present reign of God, where God, or what God wants is what is actually happening, is right here in our space, immediately imminent, extremely close. And John and Jesus both tell us to repent because of that. Because that kingdom is right here, the message is repent. Repent. Okay, well, what does that mean? Again, there's all sorts of things going around in our minds when we think about the word repent. What's in your mind when I ask, what does repent mean? I'm concerned here, too, because there's a common usage of this that is not really at all biblical, right? I'm concerned that most of us think about repentance or repenting as turning our lives around, as either stopping something bad that we're currently doing that we know we shouldn't be doing, or beginning something good that we know we should be doing that we're not currently doing. It's behaviorally focused, I'm afraid. For many of us. I'm I'm concerned that we confuse repentance with either kind of a personal plan of sin avoidance, let's stop the bad stuff, or a personal plan of penance, which is not repentance now. Penance, often conceived of as doing religious stuff to make up for the bad stuff that we did over here. None of that is repentance In the original language, the the word is metanoia, repentance. It literally means a change of mind about something. Often repentance is explained as as a turning, and it is that. But there's there's a different Greek word that, that means the external turning, the behavioral side of turning. What this word means, what repentance means, is the internal side of the turning. It's a change of mind. It's an internal change. Now, the the external change is important, but we'll get to that next week because that's really the believing part of Jesus' instruction to repent and believe. Biblically, believe means align your life to the change of mind to which you've come in repentance. But again, we often confuse those two things, right? We think of repentance as aligning our lives. So thus the word repent means changing your mind about God, this world, and your life and turning to Jesus. That's what the word really means. Now, if, if you were with us last week, uh, we, we talked a bit about the battle of worldviews. We talked about the internal dialogue that all of us have. You know it. I mean, the ideas come at 100 miles an hour and sometimes we don't know what to do with them. And all of them are trying to speak a word into our view of the world what it is that's really going on in this life and and our life and and the world as a whole. We talked about worldviews. I like this definition. A worldview is a view of the world used for living in the world. A worldview is a mental model of reality, a comprehensive framework of ideas and attitudes about the world, ourselves, and life, a system of beliefs, a system of personally customized theories about the world and how it works with answers for a wide range of questions. Your worldview is kind of what explains to you What's going on around here? Why people act the way they do? Why things fit together or don't? Where I fit into this whole thing? How, is, how it is that I'm living and breathing right now? How it is that I came to be? What my purpose in this world is? Our worldview. And you have one. 
It's impossible to be neutral on this. Everyone has some view of the world by which they're living. Repentance, then, is about changing your mind on your worldview and adopting Jesus' view of the world as yours. That's the thing. And and again, the thing Jesus added to John's message was not just repent, but repent and believe. And once you've changed your mind about what's really going on in the world, then the believing part is now align your life to that. And again, this is, this is next week's message. We'll come, we'll come back to this. But I'm, I'm really afraid that we get confused about the repentance part, right? Like if we were to distill John's message and, and the first part of Jesus' message, this is really it. Change your mind about God, this world, and your life, and turn to Jesus because the active reign of God is extremely close. God's not way up there somewhere. God is right here. The kingdom of God is right here. There's no hiding from... This, this is the insidiousness of willful sin that's described by Psalm 19. Remember, remember this? Uh, where David prays, Lord... Uh, uh, may, may willful sin not rule over me. Be the king of me. Right? Because we all know that when we're engaged in willful sin, that is not what God prefers. So the kingdom is absent in that place. And we've, we've stepped away. Right? Not from God in our relationship, you know, but just from that reality of where what God prefers is what is happening. And and the work then of the Christian throughout life, the process of sanctification, is becoming more Christ-like and praying for ourselves personally, may your kingdom come and your will be done in me as it is in heaven. So we become more and more the kingdom people that, that we were created to be. So that's the invitation. Change your thinking about God, this world, and your life and, and turn to Jesus because the active reign of God is extremely close. And then, and then to close, the last bit of the text we read from Luke, the, quoting Isaiah. Here it is again. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. We read this and it kind of just sounds like uh, either bizarre Bible lingo if you're not familiar with it or stuff we've heard so often. Maybe if you grow up in the church, it just rolls right by you, right? But what this refers to is a, a very widely held ancient practice that when an eminent king or ruler, a visiting dignitary would come to your city, all of the people of the city would go out and they would build a huge smooth road extending out from their city so that the dignitary, this, this coming king, could arrive with ease and with the kind of proper pomp and dignity do a king. So when they talk about making straight paths, they're talking about literally a construction project where, where the trail was curvy, we're going we're gonna, you know, to make it straight now. And where it went up a hill and down through a valley, well, we're going to chop off the top of this hill and put that dirt in the valley and we're going to make it smooth. I mean, think Highway 131 driving up to, uh, to Traverse City or something. Right? You know, I mean, 
or any, any highway. You chop the tops of the hills and you put the dirt in the valley, you make the way smooth, and you don't have the road go like this. You take great pains to make it straight. And I mean, 131 is almost smooth, right, after all the construction. So we're, get, we're getting close. But that's the thing, because the shortest path between two, dis, between two points, right, is straight and flat. So how do we prepare the way for the Lord? How do we do that in our lives, make the crooked ways straight and the, the bumpy ways smooth? We repent. That's what this is about. Repentance clears the way for Jesus to come into our lives. Repentance makes the crooked ways straight and the bumpy ways smooth. Repentance is the superhighway of Isaiah's vision that clears the way for the Lord to come into our lives. Repentance prepares the way for the Lord. And, and this is what we do in Advent. Right? We, we, we prepare the way of the Lord, not by cleaning up our lives, not by trying to make ourselves presentable to God so that we can come to him again, but by repenting, by changing our mind about what's really going on in this world, uh, what's going on with God and in, in, in our lives. And if we're stuck in the mode of thinking about repentance as punishment, as stuff we either need to stop doing because we're being bad or start doing because we're failing and not doing it, we'll never engage this invitation as Jesus intended. Right? Because both of these angles on repentance completely miss the gospel because they're both entirely focused on what we can do for ourselves spiritually. And that's 180 degrees from the gospel because the gospel says that we're helpless spiritually. And ironically, the very first step in authentic Christian repentance is completely abandoning the idea that we can do anything to make ourselves presentable to God. Completely abandoning the kind of underlying misunderstanding of repentance that I've got to get my, my stuff together and then I can come back. No. This is just, just turn. Change your mind about what's really going on here. And if you really get that, if we really get that in our minds and hearts, we understand how truly terrifying repentance is. I don't know what your experience was. I didn't grow up in the church. I came to Christ later in life. I remember vividly being a senior in college, having an experience one night at a Bible study, some conversation with some friends, where I thought, I think God is real. Not just an idea, but real. No more religion. A world created by God who was breathing life into me in that very moment. Talk about change of thinking. It's terrifying. And, and the response is kind of like the one I made that night. God, help me. I feel like you're real and I don't know what to do. That's repentance. Not getting your life all cleaned up and figured out. Inside, turning. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven 
has come near. Change your mind about God, this world, and your life and turn to Jesus because the active reign of God is right here. Right here. Our repentance prepares the way for the Lord. Accept that invitation for the pure gift that it is. It's not a punishment, it's a gift. And it's intended to lead us back into the fullness of life that God designed for us and created us to enjoy. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.